Hello, welcome to the Blue Grid podcast. This is your host, Major Ani Fedotova, a psychologist at Los Angeles Air Force Base. What makes us resilient? What is grit? Please join me as I set out to discover how we can become grittier. This podcast features current and former military leaders, mental health experts, elite athletes, veterans, special operators, superior performers, POWs, and others affiliated with the military who have overcome significant adversity. Each guest will discuss the unique methods and practices to help airmen and really all service members or anyone interested to build mental toughness and grit. The views expressed are those of the author or guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, the Department of Defense, or the United States government. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. This is the Blue Grid Podcast, and today we have a special treat, Michelle Paget. Michelle Paget is the Director of Warrior Wellness and Policy Integration, Assistant Secretary of the Air Force Office. She is responsible for leading transformation efforts with a multidisciplinary team of experts to enhance human performance and advance quality service and experience for warfighters and their families. Her diverse career includes positions across the health, human performance, and education fields, where she served as a human resource director, consultant, therapist, counselor, instructor, and curriculum developer. Michelle, what haven't you done? Your list of accomplishments and accolades is long, but it seems like your passion lies with resilience. Could you share why? Absolutely. I think that throughout someone's lifetime, you know, they have these intentional, I call them intentional memories or intentional moments, but you never know when they're going to be created. And I think that for me, working with different populations and moving throughout my husband's career, because I am a military spouse, I learned a few things about people. And one of the stories that resonates with me is that, and I didn't realize the impact that it would have in creating these intentional moments with people, is that a family, a young family who had a tradition of military service had actually lost their son while he was serving. And I reached out to the family. I knew they were grieving. I checked in with them either through text or voicemail, whatever email I could do. And while they didn't live close, I just felt I was compelled to really let them know that even though they experienced loss within their own family, they were still part of the big Air Force family. And not only did they lose their son, their daughter had lost her brother. And it was very difficult for them. And so while they were grieving, I made sure that I also reached out to their daughter separately and independently and just checked in to see how she was doing. Well, as I would say, over a six-month period of time, their daughter became pregnant and I continued to check in with her, ask her about her next doctor's appointment, you know, just continuing to follow this family. And it wasn't every day, but it was what I could do because we were not co-located. And when her baby was born, she texted me a picture of the baby and a picture of the family with her parents beside her. And what she put inside that text will live with me forever. And it basically said, thank you for being there and being like a mother to me when my parents could not. Mm. And I think, you know, that is something that you learn about just giving what you can. It wasn't as if I could be there and give her a hug or do the things that a mother or a father can do. But what I could give her was my time. And sometimes that's enough. Yeah. I would say that it's those kind of moments that really shape sort of your understanding of the environment and how you get through difficult times. 
Oftentimes you don't do it alone. You know, nobody can really take away your pain or your grieving or your suffering, but you don't have to do it alone. And this is an example of how you realized that resilience, understanding resilience and teaching resilience is your passion. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, I think it's just, I have multiple moments like that, that really sort of hit home for me that I realized that no matter what you start with, you know, what you have, you start where you are with what you have and do what you can. And that has been my motto for no matter where we've moved, no matter what personal stress or professional position I've had, I think that if we give someone a safe space to share what they're going through personally or professionally, if we can make them feel valued and heard and understood, that we will inspire someone every day. Tell us about what you do in your professional capacity, what your day-to-day operations look like, and why do you continue to do that work? Well, currently, I'm actually detailed to the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center, also known as the JAKE. It was established basically in 2018 to accelerate the integration of artificial intelligence across the department. And what we realize is we can't boil the ocean. We can't solve every single problem today. But could we develop sort of priorities for the department and for our nation and really focus on this convergence of science, technology, and medicine that will help us get after some longstanding issues that we've struggled with? And so the areas that I focused on are really human performance, combat medicine, and medical readiness. I know that a lot of people are aware that we have transitioned sort of the medical treatment facilities over to the Defense Health Agency. But what most people don't realize is about 24% of the issues that they see at the Defense Health Agency are musculoskeletal injuries. And then it's followed by mental health disorders. We spend a lot of money on cancer. It's the single fastest growing cost in the Department of Defense support functions. And so what are we doing about it? How do we apply artificial intelligence to some of these challenges so that we can generate operational readiness and extend service members' career? We have several different projects that we're working. I've created these integrated project schemes. And I'm focused on things like medical imaging. We actually have 55 million slides and it offers a new detection cancer model for breast cancer, prostate cancer, colon cancer, and cervical dysplasia, just by utilizing artificial intelligence and an augmented reality microscope. We're working on medical imaging for radiology as well, so we can reduce the time for results and then upskill the workforce because not every treatment facility will have a radiologist. We're working with Stanford to look at chest x-rays and predict outcomes for COVID infections and aid in outbreak management. But the one that I'm very interested in is improving readiness and reducing the non-deployable population through early identification and treatment of various diseases by matching personnel records and your electronic health records and scanning that entire record. I have eight functional models for asthma, arthritis, invertebrate disc syndrome, limited motion in arm, leg, migraine, mild traumatic brain injury, and major depression. And so the earlier we can get people in for treatment, the better the outcome. You're looking at those personnel records and medical records, and you could plug in some variables and predict how likely some of these individuals will develop certain conditions that will prevent them from being ready to deploy. That's right. Prevent them from being at risk. I think of a traffic policeman standing at the corner with a speed gun, scanning every vehicle as it goes by. Could we embed that into the electronic health record process so that scanning records continually, and then it pops up sort of a check engine light to say, hey, doc, I think you need to look at this person. Artificial intelligence is never going to independently make decisions, 
It's really about being able to alert the doctors when they need to put eyes on and ask some questions. It's like a clinical decision support tool to really aid in where you're looking. I have so many questions about artificial intelligence because I'm very interested in use of AI for suicide prevention or potential, some bad outcomes and social media or various search engines that could identify folks who are susceptible to looking for ways to end their lives, for instance. You stole the words right out of my mouth because we are working on that as well. We've actually created a psychological autopsy tool to apply natural language processing to reports of those who have taken their lives to be able to make predictions. And it's much different than knowing what the risk factors and protective factors are because once somebody dies, they do pull down the social media, they interview several folks. And so there's a lot of information that we've gathered over time. And we've basically been able to look at it from a completely different perspective. Are there specific words that people are using, websites that they're searching to allow us to intervene earlier in this process? Major Aliyah Nadine, I'm sure you know her. Yes. We speak a little bit about this during the podcast, during the interview, but also we spoke outside of that as well. And she said, you know, the technology already exists. It's not really widely implemented. I think there are probably challenges to use that technology outside of the government, outside of the kind of the enterprise, the DOD entity. Yeah, it's a difficult question on whether or not we should allow it to look at things that we consider private or personal. And Social media has made our lives a lot more public. And I think that as we've evolved from keeping things pretty much within the walls of our home to now sort of telling people what's inside those walls through social media, and it may or may not be the truth. Not everything that people post is accurate. It may be a version of what they'd like to see versus what it is. And so it becomes difficult for anybody to really understand what's going on. And I think that's why this personal interaction is so important. I think of many times where I've walked down the halls of the Pentagon and I've said, hi, how are you? I usually get the one word answer, fine, or good, or sometimes nothing. And it's rare that somebody stops and actually tells me how they're doing like more than one word. And when those moments happen, I stop and I listen. And that's it. There's no sort of magic to resilience. Often people are confused, I think, because they're worried that they're stressed. And what I tell folks is, you know what, we stress over things that we value. And so we have to figure out a way to acknowledge that there will be stress in our life and to use that stress to our advantage. I was looking at some of the materials you sent me, and I just want to ask you, tell us about who you are. I am a licensed mental health therapist. I've had several different positions, as you mentioned earlier in your introduction. I've worked with a variety of people over time, both for the government and for industry and academia. I've treated sex offenders, worked with gangs, and an addictions program, worked with people who had trauma, eating disorders, phobias, worked with couples and children. And then I taught advanced math at a high school and developmental psychology at the university and taught some paraprofessional classes as well. And then served as the director of human resources and wrote curriculum and was a command school liaison and you name it. And I say all those things because I am a military spouse and I don't think I'm any different than any other military spouse. I grew up on a farm in North Dakota, which I think has made me sort of flexible and adaptable. You gain a sense of problem solving skills when you move quite a bit because you're figuring out different things that maybe you haven't had to do in the past. And for me, I've gained this sort of high level of trust and respect for others 
but probably most of what I've done is internalize this shared sense of duty and patriotism and pride because I've been surrounded by men and women in uniform. And I think that's allowed me to be resilient when dealing with prolonged stress and various times of crisis. It sounds like you ended up moving quite a bit. And is that why you ended up changing jobs? (laughs) Yes. And, you know, it's funny because I would be stressed when we would have a move and I'd say, okay, you know, I've got to figure out this roadmap. And, you know, when am I going to stop working in this position? And when am I going to start looking for another position? It was easier before we had children. And then when we had children, it was working in all those other things I had to consider, right? But what I will say is that my husband said to me, I'm not worried. I'm not sure where you are because you always figure it out. And that kind of stuck with me. And I thought, okay, I can do this. If he believes I can do it and he couldn't explain to me how to do it, And I told him, I said, you know, it's easy for you in the military because you're surrounded by people that you know, and you go to the same conferences and you pretty much know what you're walking into, but I don't. And while we've been married a long time and we've moved together quite a while, every single move was a little bit different. And I still didn't quite understand the community that I was walking into. And that's sort of when I really came up with this idea of the power of community resilience. You need to get to know the network. And I've told folks that I've mentored, you should never be more than three phone calls away from your next position. You never know when the person that you're talking to may become your boss. And it just gives you a completely different perspective about who you are, where you fit in, That sense of belongingness and pride that comes with the position of being a military spouse or being a mother or a daughter. Could you clarify when you said you should never be more than three phone calls away? Yeah, I mean, it's funny because I talk to people about who gave you this most memorable advice and what was that advice. And when I'm mentoring, I say, you know, there are two things that I really want you to do. I want you to take it in. And I'd like you to pass it on. And my parents said to me, from the time I was very small, I can hear them, you know, it plays in my head, do what's right, not what is easy. And believe in yourself, because the way you see yourself and treat yourself is what you will become. You are the sum of your parts. And so, you know, that's really important. Like, how do you remain congruent in all aspects of your life? Is a part of your community resilience. You talk about types of resilience that you have. Could you talk about that too? Sure. Anya, I know I use a lot of analogies with a vehicle. I don't know why that's on my brain, but you know, we all have this tank on our vehicle that lets us know when we're full or when we're empty. And the light sort of goes on when you're getting low. Yet we don't really have this tank that is visible to others. And Resilience has been a word that's been thrown around for a very long time. And I think we're all resilient. There's this natural type of resilience. We're born with it. And then you have this adaptive resilience, and it's sort of trial by fire. And then you have what I call restored resilience, and you just learn to deal with events. That's really what survival is. And so with natural resilience, I think of You know, children learning to ride a bike, they're excited to try it and they get up even if they're knocked down. With adaptive resilience, these life events force you to change and adapt. And so I think of moving in the military. That's my adaptive resilience. I had no experience before. My family was not in the military. And so I didn't really understand that world and the things that would be thrown at me. But I sort of learned to adapt. And restored resilience, learning to deal with events and survival is sort of like when your life has been threatened, maybe a traumatic event of some sort. And so really important to understand when your tank is low or when someone else's resilience tank is low. Because we know that long-term stress can lead to high blood pressure or depression or fatigue or even more stress. 
folks that will find it really difficult to make decisions. Those are the kinds of things that I consider. And I think it's really important to know yourself in order to be able to give to others. You said earlier today that resilience is not that complicated, yet there are some habits or routines that you use to practice and to enhance your own resilience. Could you talk about that? I've always told myself that there are sort of three essentials to happiness. It's something to do, something to love, and something to hope for. And I believe I mentioned it earlier, you have to figure out, like, start where you are, use what you have, and do what you can. And so I've thought about it very simply. Start where you are, use what you have, and do what you can. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to me that, you know, we're really focused on this idea of physical fitness. And we tell people to run or eat healthy or work out, etc. But we really don't talk about what we're feeding our brain. You know, we don't talk about brain health or brain fitness. And our brain is sort of this natural pharmacy that can influence not only our mood, but our reactions. Our brain, you know, has both positive and negative chemicals, and we can choose which one we're going to use, right? And just by the way in which we think about things. So can we develop a skill to self-generate chemicals that influence positive moods and behaviors? You know, if you want to generate dopamine, if you set a goal and achieve it, you're rewarding motivated behavior. If you want to generate serotonin, you pursue things that reinforce purpose and success, and that's your defense against depression. And if you want to generate endorphins, you engage in physical activity to walk, run, swim, whatever it is to relieve that stress and pain. And generating oxytocin, which is also known as the love hormone. You know, if you engage in hugs, hand-holding, dancing, massage, you know, in the times of COVID, that really explains why there are no pets. You know, if you have a dog or a cat at home and you are petting your animal, that actually heals relational distress and generates this sense of safety and trust. And I think balancing that brain chemistry will assist you in managing your energy, you know, align yourself with nature, sort of calm your auto thoughts and be realistic about the emotions you're facing and trying to create these really deep connections. When I work with people who had experienced traumatic events, what I realized is that a trauma is really an event that combines fear with lack of control. And what is traumatic for one person may not be traumatic for another. And our Stress can really impact the way in which our logical thinking brain part of our brain works. And, you know, stress triggers that release of chemicals that prepare us to really react to a threat. So one of the things that we can do is just have this ability to call up our thinking brain, right? To rewire and structure the functioning of our brain so we don't feel trapped in the storm of anxiety or fear or anger. And I think those are, if we're really thinking about the importance of health, it has to include brain health as part of our discussions and our thought process. And it's like the podcast today. If I were nervous and speaking in front of big crowds and I started telling myself, this is going to be awful, my performance would show that. And if I tell myself I'm excited and I'm excited and I'm excited, that physiological response, the butterflies or whatever, they're not there. And so it's because you are able to control those kinds of things just by changing what you think about a situation. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you could give us an example, what it would it look like to rewire your interpretation to rewire your brain to respond differently. But that makes sense what you described. Plus, physiological reactions of nervousness or anxiety are very similar to physiological reactions of excitement. The same butterflies, you know, maybe heartbeat. Yes. But if we're telling ourselves, I'm excited, that's going to be good. I, mean, I can't wait. It's very different than I'm anxious. 
I can't do this. I'm going to fail. Right. Exactly. It's funny because I've often told my husband in COVID in particular, when we're driving down the road, he notices every red light. And he was like, oh, we're going to be late. We're going to have to leave 15 minutes earlier because I'm going to hit every red light. And so because he's already thinking that, he points out every red light he hits. And so, you know, I thought, well, that's so curious because he's not a negative person. He considers himself a realist. I asked him if he was a pessimist and he said, no, I'm a realist with experience. (laughs) (laughs) But what is funny about that is that, you know, it occurred to me that he was not noticing the green lights. And so I just was driving in the car with him and I said, there's a green light. And then, you know, a little bit further, I go, there's a green light. And he goes, why do you keep telling me all the green lights? I'm not stopping. I said, well, you were noticing the red ones. I wanted to notice the green ones. And interestingly enough, it changed his perspective about, you know, how early we would have to leave. And, you know, his interpretation of like, oh, the lights are out to get me. They always change red when I'm on the road type mentality, right? And so sometimes these habits that lead to resilience are just having somebody else who can help you. That's what I mean, sort of by calming your auto thoughts that help you to see the world from a different vantage point. That's a great example. I know you know a lot about resilience and you teach resilience and you teach some of the, you know, we talked about habits of resilient people. I know you do some practical exercises with people in some of your workshops. Could you walk us through what it looks like? What can we learn practically? There are two things that you control, your level of knowledge and your level of effort. And we choose whether we act or react. And again, I think this embracing stress as a normal part of life is really important. And we'll stress over the things that we value. And so how do we use stress to our advantage? In the times of COVID, What's the silver lining? Well, I get to spend more time with my family because we're all working from home and my kids are going to school. But more importantly, they now have a role model. They understand what I'm doing at work when they can't see me. And one of the things that I think has been incredibly helpful for my daughter as she's in high school is that they have what's called the state standards of learning. And They have to pass these exams every year in order to get their diploma. And the prompt question that she received for her English essay this year was, does an optimistic attitude influence the success of your career? And she had to write for that. And she came home and she said, mom, I am so happy I got that question and that you were working from home. Because I've been listening to you for the whole year talk about brain health and the importance of perspective. And I was able to write this essay and I talked about the chemicals in the brain and I talked about this and I did that and staying in the present moment and utilizing mindfulness or yoga or deep breathing and calling up your thinking brain, whether or not this decision will matter in one year or five years from now. And she said, I think I knocked it out of the park. Wow. And I'll tell you, that moment for me made me realize how important it was for me to be at home. And it also made me realize that you never know what kind of influence you have on someone else. And, you know, you generally don't get that feedback from others. And that's why this idea of resilience is so difficult because you're helping people without even knowing it. And so, you know, well, how do you build resilience? And so what have I done at home to sort of role model those things that will help others be successful in whatever life events or challenges come their way? And so one of the things that I talk about is boundaries. Boundaries actually help us maintain relationships that are important to us and allow us to ask for what we need. And by establishing boundaries, we protect our energy. It gives us time to rest, a time to reflect, 
and a time to protect our values. In COVID, I think many are worried about health, about safety, about jobs. They probably are experiencing a loss of their friends or missing their old life. And boundaries change. And so we have to be able to communicate, you know, tell someone how we feel, even if it's uncomfortable, or state our needs, ask for help, say no without guilt. That's very, very hard. Teach people how you prefer to be treated and make time to recharge on your own. I came up with an idea even for our own family. I said, we all need free time. And so we made free time signs and we put them up on the door. And so nobody would come in and disturb them. But then when I realized I have teenagers, that free time will turn into weeks (laughs) instead of maybe hours. And so that's when we renegotiated the boundaries and we said, all right. Free time is one hour and then we have to check in. You just made a sign and you put it on the door to the room or something like that? Yeah. And it's a note to everybody that, you know, we're recharging. That's an example of sort of setting boundaries, right? And you're not responsible for other people's feelings. You have to own your own feelings and allow them to feel whatever they're going to feel but they have to be able to express it as well. And so really important that you're listening. And I think, again, like for boundaries, we had a rule in the house that there was no COVID talk after 5 p.m. And we really minimized our time on social media because everything that was sort of communicated or discussed on social media had to do with COVID and it was stressing people out. And so, you know, The simple formula for setting boundaries is state what you need, offer a solution, and affirm the importance of the relationship. And so probably one of the most recent examples I can tell you is that I told my son not too long ago, I said, hey, I have a lot going on right now at both work. And, you know, we were renovating part of the house. And I told him, I said, if you need something for me, for school or sports or whatever you need, Can you please give me 24 hours notice? Because I need to be able to prioritize what I have to get done. And I want you to know you're a priority for me. So I just need 24 hours advance notice. And so interestingly enough, it was about 930 at night. And my son walks out of his bedroom and he said, Mom, I know you need 24 hours advance notice. And so I wanted to tell you that my clock didn't fast forward but we don't have to take care of it tonight because you need 24 hours. So if we could address it tomorrow and you can help me reset my clock, that would be great. I'm going to use the alarm on my phone tonight. And all I did was make a simple request, set a boundary, and they're respecting it. Even when it was as simple as changing the clock. And I said, you know, Bo, this is something that I can take care of right now. What do you do with people who don't respect boundaries? Again, it comes back to the things you control, your level of knowledge, your level of effort, and whether you choose to act or react. And so if somebody isn't respecting your boundary, what can you do? What are the decisions or choices that you have? And I think, you know, you have to relook at that and then even call up your thinking brain at the time and say, does this request or decision matter now in one year or five years and decide whether or not you need to address it. I find that just the way in which I make requests changes people's maybe defensiveness by asking questions. You can give guidance by asking questions. It doesn't always have to be direct. I'm looking at the resilience plan worksheet and One of the things you ask is, how do you calm yourself? How do you calm yourself? And what are some of the ways that you've seen people do that effectively? Interestingly enough, I usually calm myself by taking deep breaths, honestly. And oftentimes just walking away. Maybe I just go outside, get some fresh air. Or if I'm working at the Pentagon, I will walk down to Starbucks and get a tea. And I think it's about sort of resetting. Again, I continually ask myself, does this decision, does this moment, does this interaction matter 
will it matter to me in one year, five years, 10 years down the road? And if the answer is no, I let it go. When you say thinking brain, that's what you mean? Exactly. And it's easier said than done when you have a sense of agency, when you're able to determine your own priorities. For those who are struggling, perhaps financially, that's a lot harder to do. I would say when my husband and I were first married, one of the things that he would do would go out and go to an antique shop or a thrift shop or whatever and grab something, and then he would start refinishing it. And that calmed him, you know, woodworking, building something that would calm him. For me, sometimes it was writing or painting. But interestingly enough, what happened is that he realized my signs of stress and I realized his, and then I point them out. And I told him originally when he would point out my signs of stress, that wasn't very nice. (laughs) And so I just made a request, right? I said, Hey, if I'm getting like this, then I want you to ask me two things because they contribute to my stress, whether or not I've had enough sleep, and whether or not I've had anything to eat. Mm. If he figures out you're not in a good place emotionally, that's what you want him to ask you. Exactly. And originally he would say, man, you sure are crabby. Mm -hmm. Or man, you sure are this or that, right? And it seemed very derogatory. And so I was just like, you know, here's what I have going on. And I don't know that anybody else would act any differently, but good that you told me so I can make adjustments because I'm not necessarily aware of everything that I do. And he knows me the best. And so I just said that this is what I need from you. I need you to help me stay in check. And he's been great at it. And now my kids do it and they'll say, Hey mom, you look really busy. Have you had anything to eat? But it's a different discussion. It doesn't put me on the defensive, but it also does wake me up and realize like, man, I've been working a lot of hours. And if my kids are noticing it, then it's time for me to take a break. What were some of your darkest, most difficult times? And how did you cope with those situations or that situation? You know, where I talk about building this community of resilience, it's also about building your network. And I think for those deepest, darkest moments that you have in your life, whatever it may be, knowing who can give you what you need. My husband and my kids are great, but there are things that I probably don't share with them because they are not able to respond in a way that I need or that I know that I need. And so having that network of friends and family, just to get that sense of self and identity back. There was a tragedy that happened at one of the places that I worked. And it was actually after the Columbine shooting, but I was working at the high school. And it was two weeks after the Columbine shooting. And I had a student who brought a gun into class. And one of the kids, brave, brave kid, wrestled the gun out of his hand and threw it to me. He had a backpack, so I had no idea what the weapons were inside. And I locked the gun up inside my desk and I called for security and it took them 20 minutes to respond to my classroom. Wow. And so that was the longest 20 minutes that I've experienced, but I needed to take care of the kids in the room. And so I asked all the other kids to move to one side of the room while I sat with the gentleman who had brought in the weapon and he was sitting on the floor and he was just despondent. I just sat down very close to him and asked him what was in his backpack. And he gave me a list of other weapons that were in there. And I told him, I said, I'm really sorry you're going through this. And I'm going to be here for you. 
and just talked with him. And so I say all that to say that once he left the room, I actually thought I could teach my next class. And I started teaching, you know, the bell rang, et cetera. The kids shifted classrooms and people really didn't know what happened. But the principal of the school walked in and said, Michelle, you need to go take care of yourself. And I argued with her. I said, no, I'm perfectly okay. You know, this is what I do. This is what I was trained for. And she looked at me and she said, no, you need to take care of yourself. And it was a struggle for quite a while because I had no idea what kind of danger I was in or those kids were in at the time. It really kind of hit me like a Mack truck a week or so later, but I still had responsibilities and you can't just give up your responsibilities. And so how do you get through it? Knowing that you have all of these things that you have to handle and manage. And it took a team. It took a community. I had a former military member who came in, who talked with the class. I asked school counselors to come in to talk with the class. We sort of did debriefings together as a class. I talked to my family members, my husband. I talked to all kinds of folks. And it was really, believe it or not, just being honest about what I was feeling, what was happening, and truly sort of reflecting on that time and how important training actually is. And, you know, we train for every enemy except for the one within in the military. I'm so sorry. That's so heartbreaking. And I'm sorry you had to go through that experience. Oh, you know, but I can share tons of moments like that, you know, and that's sort of when I came up with that resilience plan worksheet. I was at Ramstein during the USS cold bombing. And while I worked at the hospital there, I wasn't the provider team for those individuals that came in. And so I thought, well, what can I do? So I decided like, if I were a family member, I would want to know what's happening. And so we set up a military community crisis hotline so that we'd have 24 hour coverage for families. And then we came up with this idea of having a host family and offering housing to families that were traveling over to Lonstool so that they could receive support and care and they could focus on recovery and not worry about, do they have an international driver's license or could they get from the hotel to the hospital? You know, those are all kinds of things that sort of add stress that you don't need. I worked again at the Ramstein hospital when army private first class, Jessica Lynch returned from captivity in the Iraqi war. I was at Ramstein during the Frankfurt shooting and It was very tragic and traumatic for a lot of the folks that witnessed that particular shooting at the airport. And I think, again, you know, having the team sort of in contact with that host nation community and then setting up a memorial run, it's 10 years since Airman Cudabak's death. And they're still doing a memorial run. And my son, who was two at the time, was in the stroller, and I pushed him for this memorial run. I explained to him what was happening at two. And so every time we passed somebody that was in a military uniform, he hopped out of the stroller and saluted him. And I'll never forget that. Could you tell what happened? Because I think a lot of people may not have context for what happened. It was a team that was about to deploy. It was a security forces team, and they were on a blue bus at the Frankfurt airport. And terrorists walked onto the bus and started shooting airmen who were about to deploy. And the gun jammed. And so several people were killed in that shooting, including the bus driver and the Gun had jammed, and so one of the airmen chased him down and caught him in the middle of the airport. And the people that survived 
just said, like, I knew that my time was up. And they talk about having that gun right in their face and just knowing that their time was up. And then sort of things were in slow motion as they were processing, like the gun has jammed. And it was because of the military training that they were able to respond in such a traumatic event and be able to catch the person who did it. And you were at the time at Ramstein Air Force Base, which is right next to that airport, right? Yes. And so because the people who died were attached to Ramstein, we were in charge of taking care of the families of the fallen. And obviously the team that had survived and the team actually came from England. And so it was just making sure that we had this reach back support for them and really critical for the survivors. It does seem like you've been through quite a bit and have encountered heroes in your life and have been heroic yourself in some of the stressful situations. I wouldn't go that far, but thank you. Again, it's, you know, how many times have you heard the time to plan is not during a crisis? So I've really just thought that's true for resilience. Understanding yourself, understanding your preferences enable you to act in unforeseen situations. I just have a couple more questions. And I do want to ask you a little bit more about community resilience. I don't know that I've heard that term a lot, but you talk about this a lot and you know about community resilience quite a bit. And for you, it came as a kind of organic result of you moving quite a bit and realizing that one of the things you had to do is to create community quickly, kind of plug into the local resources pretty quickly. Could you tell us a little bit about community resilience and maybe some of the tips for increasing that resilience? I really think it's about finding your path. And I think the wisdom you have is experience that you've collected over life, whether it be battles on the playground or learning to ride a bike or people that you meet or places you travel, cultures you experience, music that you listen to or books that you read, from the arguments you have or the struggles you overcome and the hardships you endure. Finding your path you really need to enjoy that experience along the way and take pride in sort of those memorable firsts and take risks. And even if they don't turn out the way you wanted it to, those experiences will actually shape your values, establish your expectations, mold your opinions, and even influence your dreams. For me, it's never been about what you are that holds you back. It's what you think you're not. Hmm. And the legacy that you build is through the people you've influenced along the way. Unfortunately, you never really truly know who you've influenced or who you've helped or who you've mentored unless they've told you. And I think that what I've realized is that I've done nothing alone. I've always had somebody in my corner. It started with my parents and my grandparents and my brother. And it's continued throughout my life from different people that I've met. Every single time that we've moved, we've met somebody there that was so incredibly special to us, that lifted us up, that gave us strength. There were skills that they had that I admired. And so... Having those kinds of people in your life really can lift you up. And there are also people in your life who can bring you down. And so you have to make choices about who you want to influence you along the way. And it's really difficult because while you may have fun with certain people or you may like them for you name the reason, there are some people that are not going to be good to have around in your life. And so it goes without saying that, again, I always think about what are my choices, my level of knowledge, my level of effort, and whether I act or react. And so for me, this idea of community resilience is really understanding who I am as a person, 
what do I want to do with my life that will give myself purpose and meaning? And then how do I get to know the landscape? Grow where I'm planted, whatever that means. And get out into the community and understand where I can do the most good. Is there one piece of advice that you could give to all service members who are going through difficult times? One piece of advice. If you had the magic wand, then you could see everyone do one thing. What would it be to improve their resilience, to to improve their mental health? There are a couple of things. I don't know if I have one, but you don't have to know everything. Just like a camera, you can choose where you want to focus. And I think that life isn't really about finding yourself. It's about creating yourself. And so while you're in the military and you may not feel like you have any control over things within your career, there is opportunity in that. I've never been in the same job twice. (laughs) While some may be discouraged by that, I've actually been inspired by it because it's occurred to me that regardless of the position I have, It's the relationships I have with others that actually make me successful. And it's, you know, those multiple connections that I've discovered these other opportunities. I've learned to remain open to the possibilities of doing something different. And frankly, a lot of these things have pushed me to try things I never would have thought possible. And so there was actually this interesting quote that I read by Albert Einstein. And it said, the person who follows the crowd will go no further than the crowd. But the person who walks alone is likely to find themselves in a place no one's ever been before. It's hard to do things differently than other people, but it can be worth it. You've certainly done things very differently than other people. Your career path is just very diverse and very interesting and amazing. And this is Michelle Paget, the Director of Warrior Wellness and Policy Integration. Thank you so much for joining today for the Blue Grid Podcast. Thank you. I really appreciate it. This is your host, Major Anya Fedotova. Thank you for listening to the Blue Grid Podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed this interview. My goal is to air the narratives of courage, vulnerability, and grit to normalize the airmen's own challenges and help them internalize the message of hope and recovery. This discussion is not a formal medical advice and any techniques, treatment, diagnosis, or alternative actions discussed are not a recommended treatment or course of action for all listeners and are not a replacement for professional medical assistance. You are encouraged to seek medical or psychological help for your unique issue. If you have feedback, please find me in the global. My email is anavfidotova.mil at mail. Mail. It's A-N-N-A dot V dot F-E-D-O-T-O-V-A dot mail at mail 